Greetings to all of God's people. This is again Mordecai Joseph. And we are now in lesson 21. Last time, if you remember, we were in uh, chapter 6. We began the account that became a source of many legends as time went by. Uh, much of it had to do with the excitement of the imagination of many people. and Therefore, they invented all kinds of stories about it. You know how little children are when they get scared. They go into, uh, into dark places and a little plant becomes a giant tree. In essence, when people are in the dark, that's the way they begin to see things. Just like your shadow that you see at night. It certainly is much bigger than uh, the real thing. And yet, that's the perception that people have when they are in the dark, so to speak. Uh, in the light, you see exactly uh, how things are in their right proportion. And in essence, that's what we see here. A mixture of imagination, being in the dark, not having uh, light, that is truth, real facts, uh, people exaggerate things, and that's the human tendency where we look at something and we are excited and we are emotional and we are not in full control and so things are blown totally out of proportion. And then when things calm, calm down and we look at them in a very proper way, in a calm way, then everything uh, is reduced uh, down to its proper size. Uh, that's in essence what uh, we're talking about here. Uh, so people began to invent all kinds of ideas about angels, about this and about that, uh, to uh, justify their own imaginations. And that's the way it goes. Well, anyway, we were uh, in verse 1, and we were talking about the nature of angels to show that uh, angels could not really be uh, the subject matter here, but it was basically men. And we're talking about the, how different angels are and what angels wear and what the gods of the, uh, this world wear and what God was uh, punishing uh, in Egypt. He was punishing the gods of Egypt. And the gods of Egypt were basically uh, creatures, serpents and bugs and beetles and, and bees and uh, uh, ox and all kind of uh, creatures like that. And as we explained, that was the physical counterpart of the angelic beings. And that's why we shall see later on why God is destroying not only man, but also the beasts of the field. And uh, in Revelation, if we can recap a little bit here, we, we talked about that a little bit. In Revelation chapter 20 and verse 12, Satan is finally described in a very clear way as a person that appears or that looks like a serpent and a dragon. And that was Satan the devil. And that is made very plain. Now, in other places, it is described uh, differently, uh, like in Isaiah 27, uh, the beginning of the chapter, where it says that God is going to destroy uh, Leviathan or Leviathan, and then he is called Nahash Bariah, that means a serpent, uh, and uh, you know, with scales. Now, in other words, God is giving a description here of a destruction, not destruction in the sense at that point, of a total destruction, like when you destroy a house, you blow it up and uh, there is nothing left, but just like when you destroy a person in terms of reputation, in terms of power, in terms of influence, and so many things like that, because the Bible reveals more details about it to explain to us what the destruction is all about. Uh, we should go a little bit deeper into the into the ground to find out more details about the surface of a scripture that we read. And that's how we come with a proper understanding by looking at the background and the context. And so here, 
Satan is described as a serpent and as a dragon. In other words, that's the way he looks. So it's not like the other cherubs who are described, like the seraphim, who are described in, uh, in Isaiah, and also in Ezekiel, uh, in Ezekiel in particular, in chapter 1, and then in chapter 10, uh, the, the cherubs are described there as having four faces, uh, one eagle, one ox, one lion, and one face of man. So obviously Satan doesn't look like that because he's described as a serpent, as a dragon. And so when you see him appearing in Genesis chapter 3, that's basically the way he appeared, as a serpent. In other words, he took, he in essence possessed a physical creature uh, that was a counterpart of him and uh, others who may look like him, and he spoke to Eve through that serpent because he himself is a serpent. And so we see even that serpent later on appearing in the symbolic, uh, the brass serpent that Moses had erected where God told him to do it because uh, Israel, uh, being rebellious, was being plagued by the serpents that God sent among them. And they were fiery serpents. In other words, if they're giving their mind to rebellion, then God is in essence telling them that the source of rebellion, which is Satan, is going to come and exact the consequences on you. And that's, in essence, why the serpents were sent. So there was a spiritual uh, lesson there and also a revelation of uh, what's happening really behind the scenes. Whenever rebellion enters into our heart, whenever hatred and malice and darkness, all those things come from an evil spirit. And the ultimate of that, uh, the world of evil spirits is Satan himself. And he's a serpent and a dragon. And that's how his description is given. And so that's basically what we see there. And uh, so we see uh, this dragon here, at least Satan, appearing as such. The cherubs are eagle, ox, lion, in the face of a man. Other uh, gods are appearing in, in forms of other creatures, like fish, as we described that earlier. The god of the Philistines, Dagon or Dagon and uh, many other creatures that the Egyptians uh, worshipped, and that was the reason for it. Later on in Revelation, we are told in uh, Revelation chapter 18 and verse 2, that at the end of time, when God is going to come down and intervene in human affairs and put away Satan and his demons, he's speaking about Babylon, uh, spiritually speaking, about uh, a system, about a church, a fallen woman, and about a location and a place where he says basically that Babylon shall be a dwelling place of demons and a prison for every foul spirit and a cage of every hated and unclean bird. Uh, there you have uh, again the understanding that demons are in the forms of uh, animals, of birds, of all kind of creatures. And this is where we see them. And uh, they oftentimes like to occupy the bodies of uh, not only human beings, but also the bodies of birds, physical birds, and animals, as we see, we see in some uh, uh, places in the Bible. Uh, later on, we'll come up, uh, with, uh, we'll uh, discuss uh, one specific example of that. In Matthew 22 and verse 30, uh, there was a discussion there about how things would be in the afterlife, in other words, in the next life, not the afterlife in the sense of uh, you die and then you go somewhere else, but in the resurrection, in specific. 
Somebody brought an issue to Jesus Christ in terms of marriage, and uh, I remember the example of the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were trying to, in essence, uh, pose a question to Jesus Christ, not in a very honest manner, but to trick him, so to speak, to see what he says about it. And the Sadducees brought the example of the woman that had the husband, and then he died, and then she married his brother, and so forth, and she had seven of them. And so the question was, and mind you, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, they did not believe in angels, and uh, they lost an awful lot of information, yet they were the ones who were officiating in the temple, which is a very ironic place to be. They thought in the, from their own uh, concepts that this life is all there is to it, and that should be good enough for uh, whatever God gives you in this life. Well, anyway, they were posing that question, what would happen to that woman in the resurrection? And, of course, for her husbands also. And their specific question was, whose wife would she be? And so he told them that basically they were ignorant about the scriptures. They do not know the scriptures properly. They do not understand the power of God and uh, many very important information that was, uh, in fact, that were in the Bible that they should have known, being the priests of God, uh, they did not know. And so he told them that in the resurrection, speaking about human beings, they neither marry nor give in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. In other words, he was telling them that just like angels do not marry and do not give in marriage because they do not have the capacity for it. God didn't give them that capacity for it. The spirit beings are made of spirit. They may, may manifest themselves only when God allows them in the form of a human being. And that is God is the one that allows them and he allows only the holy angels. We have no one single example in the Bible from the beginning until the end of a demon appearing as a human being, or for Satan, or for Satan himself appearing as a human being. And when the, first, the only place where he appeared uh, in the Garden of Eden, he was in the form of a serpent, never as a human being. And there, he was not even, even appearing in the form of a serpent, he was just using the serpent, possessing the serpent in essence, and doing the talking through him. And that... Uh, Apparently, demons are allowed to do, but not to appear in a form of a, of a physical uh, body. And that's why demons like to possess either human beings or animals, because they themselves cannot manifest themselves in either human beings or animals. And so he's telling them that just like angels are not capable of either marrying or giving in marriage, so would it be with human beings in the resurrection when they are spirit beings. He did not say that when human beings are resurrected there will be angels. That's a false doctrine that entered into the minds of people who did not understand what Christ was talking about and that concept even entered into the minds of many of the people of God, be it in the house of uh, Judah, the Jewish community, or also in those uh, who had a good measure of knowledge of understanding of the scriptures, but also an awful lot of error with it. These people call themselves Christians. And basically what he was telling them, that spirit beings, that is angels, who are the counterpart, they are the spirit being, but they have the counterpart of, of the physical creation, that is animals and, and, and birds and uh, reptiles and birds, and um, the little creatures like beetles and bugs and all that, 
they cannot cross over to the human realm or even to the bestial, uh, the, the, uh, the world of animals, and just become animals or become human beings and engage in reproduction. That's what he said very plainly. Angels just can't do it. Angels can't give in marriage, nor, in other words, they're neither married nor given marriage. They just don't engage in any of that. And the major purpose of it that he was talking about is, in essence, recreation, reproduction. And so, obviously, when Genesis chapter 6 and verses uh, 1 and 2 speak about the sons of God coming to the daughters of men, he's not obviously speaking about, about angels, only about human beings. And in the beginning of life, when God creates a human being, he places a spirit in that human being. And as we can see that in the scriptures, in Zechariah chapter 12, for example, there are many other examples, it says in chapter 12 of uh, the book of Zechariah, in verse 1, the burden of the word, that is, uh, the, the, the message of the Lord, or the oracle of the Lord, of the word of the Lord against Israel. Thus says the Lord, uh, who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth. In other words, the creator, the one that determines how the creation works, because he created it. And he forms the spirit of men within him. So he created man in his own image and likeness, in the physical appearance, but he also put a spirit in him. And just like the physical uh, image of man is like his creator, so is the spirit that he gave him. It has a divine capacity. It's small measure, but it has a divine capacity and uh, divine uh, qualities and, uh, inst- you might say, natural characteristics that came from God himself. And that's why man is able to do an awful lot of things that are sort of duplicating uh, the way God does things. And so God puts a spirit in man. And so it was with Adam and Eve. When he created Adam, it was just a body. And until he breathed into him his spirit that came directly from him and gave him the spark of life, that's how he, pour, he, put, he formed the spirit in man. Uh, Adam didn't have life. And so God formed that spirit in him. And man is in his image and in his likeness. And that's the purpose he created him to be. In Genesis 1.26 we, we cover that very thoroughly. And the question of course we must ask, you know, this is the reality as some people have invented it to be. That angels can mix with man and produce. You've got a problem there. What kind of a spirit? In other words, God is the one that determines the creation and is in charge of the creation and is in control of the creation. And when he creates man, he puts a spirit in him. So supposedly if an angel came to a woman, what kind of a spirit would God place in that supposed half-man, half-demon? You see, it's a total impossibility because there is no such a thing. God does not allow who is the creator and the author of all the laws of nature, he does not allow bestiality in the sense of crossing over. Now, human beings, some of them engage in bestiality, having sex with animals, and animals having sex with human beings. But the reality is that they cannot reproduce. It's a total impossibility because God created a law. As he said in Zechariah 
12, 1, and so many other places. Everything, and in chapter 1, he repeated that again and again and again. Everything that he created is after his kind. There is absolutely no way to cross that boundary. And science had never, ever discovered any one single example where there was a crossing of the species. It's a total impossibility. And so angels, who to begin with cannot marry, no given marriage, obviously, are not involved in the scripture. But as I said, people with an awful lot of uh, imagination and hallucination and in darkness who can't see clearly and properly begin to invent things and believe in those things and then pass them on as truth and reality and other people who are not uh, spending enough time to check up on all those things and putting the scriptures together uh, fall for it, unfortunately. And so we have to be very careful about uh, misreading the scripture. The scripture is not of any private interpretation, as we have been told uh, in specific by the Apostle Peter. And so, that is a very plain thing to remember and to understand. Now, the Bible, as I mentioned before, speaks about demons that possess humans, but that's all they can do. They cannot go beyond that. They cannot become animals, and they cannot become humans, and they certainly, certainly cannot reproduce. They have never appeared in that form. And God allows human angels, God, God's angels, that is, holy angels, to appear as human beings, for the simple purpose, if they appear in any other form, they are going to be extremely scary to human beings. And, of course, they would not even be able to come in their midst. And there are times where God wants angels to come in the midst of men. And so he sends them in the form of men. And at times even he himself appears in the form of men. As he appeared to Abraham with the two angels. As we read about the three men that appeared to Abraham in the heat of the day. And Abraham went and prepared uh, lunch for them, and the three of them ate it. God and the two angels who appeared in the form of men. But that does not mean that they were men. It does not mean that they were flesh and blood. It does not mean that they had everything that man has in his body. You see, it's just an appearance. And God can do those things, so it's important to, to remember this. So let's proceed now with uh, verse 3 of Genesis chapter 6. Where God says, and the Lord said, that is Jehovah, and the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever. And uh, we can make a few points here. Uh, the spirit that he's talking about is his own spirit. Uh, as as uh, later on became known in, in the Hebrew uh, uh, language, Shekhinah, that means the uh, presence of God or the indwelling. Shrina comes from the verb uh, Lishkon, that means to dwell. From that came the, the sanctuary, the Mishkan. And God said that he wants to dwell in the midst of Israel. And that's how he dwelt, being a spirit being. His spirit dwelt in their midst, and his spirit was him. And that's, that's very plain. He makes it very plain in many ways, and we explained that earlier before, so I would never repeat that, about the spirit of God. And so that, that's what he's saying. You know, God is spirit, he's uh, composed of spirit, his body is spirit, and he has also a spirit in him, and that spirit is capable of emanating power throughout the whole universe, and emanating his wisdom and his knowledge and understanding and intelligence and all kind of things, and uh, able to create. We do not have a capacity. Uh, we are flesh, but we have a spirit that is in us, that God formed it in us, and that spirit has only a very minute capacity to emanate 
And uh, you can see it when people are angry. They don't have to say anything. You see it. You see the impact of it. It is in the air. You can enter into a room where there is tension in the air. What do you mean by that tension in the air? You're talking about the spirits of people there who are very tense. And they are emanating that tension. And sometimes you can say the tension was so thick you could cut it with a knife. So it's a reality. We can emanate love. We can emanate hatred. We can emanate malice and, and many of those qualities. We have a capacity to do it, but in a very, very minute way. And even then, you can do it only around yourself. But if somebody is in another room, there is no way for him to know that or to see that or to experience that. He has to be very close to it. So you can see the range of our capacity that God gave us in terms of the spirit that is in us is very, very small in comparison to that of God, which is absolutely limitless. He can emanate himself throughout the whole universe, and he can enter even into our own minds by putting thoughts in us and even uh, filling us with uh, whatever he decides to. Uh, his words, his thoughts, his feelings, his emotions, his nature, his character. He, that's how, as he formed the spirit in us, so he can form his spirit also in us in terms of his character and nature. And uh, it's very interesting. There have been some scientific uh, experiments along this line where they actually had some kind of instruments where they were able to measure the emanation that comes out of human beings whom they specifically told them to engage, let's say, in an extremely, very wholehearted, passionate uh, kissing. And when they did it, they were actually able to measure in some specific, uh, special instruments uh, sort of an aura that covered them. It was all around them, and the more passionate they were, the greater the intensity and the, and the size of that aura that was all around them. But even then, even then, it was only right around them, and that's as far as they could go with it. And so we, we've been given a tiny little capacity of, the, of uh, the divine powers of God, but that's as far as it goes, just, just around us. You cannot go beyond that. And so it's, it's important to, to know the difference between uh, our spirit and the spirit of God. And so God says, my spirit, this emanation that fills the whole universe and that deals with man, you see, he doesn't need to come down every time and talk to men face to face. He can do it way up there because his spirit is capable of being emanated all the way down here or wherever we are, to any corner of the universe. And so he's saying, uh, my spirit shall not uh, strive with men. In Hebrew, uh, it's lo yadun rochi be'adam be'shagam. In other words, my spirit, and the word that he used there, shall not strive, he used the word yadun, or yadon, which means, for, it comes from the word to judge. So my spirit is not going to be judging man, or evaluating man, or dwelling in the midst of man, but the word judgment is there. So he says, my spirit shall not be in the judgment uh, mode with man, with humanity. Bishagam, and shagam comes from the word, uh, I mean, in the English it did not even appear, that word, and I don't know why. And as a matter of fact, even in the Hebrew, that word does not appear in the translation when you read it in English. In the, in the Hebrew, uh, when you read a Hebrew manuscript, it says, uh, My spirit shall not abide in men forever, for, he, for that he also is flesh. And I don't know why they did not translate uh, the word bishagam, because it's there. And basically what it's talking, and I guess some other manuscripts may have had it in the old times, 
and the Septuagint and other uh, sources, but somehow, somewhere, that word uh, was taken out. And the word Beshagah means in their error, when from that Shagam comes the word Shgiah, which means an error or a mistake. So God says, I'm not going to be judging them uh, in their mistakes. In other words, I'm not going to just put up with it anymore. Now the time comes for judgment. So it's no longer the judgment in terms of the evaluation. Now it's a real judgment. When you pass judgment on them and you execute the sentence. And so that's basically what he's saying about them. And uh, human beings, and then he says, you know, I will not do that because they are flesh. In other words, flesh and blood are constantly making mistakes. They always make errors. It is human to do it. Because as you read later on, uh, let's say in the book of Romans, chapter 8 and verse 7, but in so many other places, when the Spirit of God is not in man in fullness, people make mistakes. People have resentment toward the law of God. In Romans 8, 7, it says, the, the carnal mind, the fleshly mind, being flesh, physical, is in a state of animosity against God. Just like a little child. He wants to do his own thing. He doesn't want his mother to tell him what to do. Or his older brother. Or later on as we grow older. We don't want anybody to tell us what to do. Uh, that's the way we act carnally, physically. Being flesh and blood. And so we make many mistakes and many errors. We're not willing to learn. And so human beings make mistakes. But God and his angels, his holy angels, they do not make any mistakes or errors. Because they are not flesh. They are spirit beings. And that's, that's what he's saying. I'm not going to be judging them in their constant making mistakes and errors because of the mind that they have. I'm not going to uh, do that anymore. I'm not going to put up with it anymore. I'm going to judge them. And the judgment, as you know, later on, was uh, the flood. And that's what we read here. And at this point he says, uh, in verse 3 at the end, yet his days shall be 120 years. In other words, I'm going to give them a period of 120 years. He wants to give them one more opportunity to make some changes. And that's when the concept came about Noah being a preacher of righteousness. But you only worried about it. He was a preacher of righteousness in the, in the New Testament uh, that is mentioned. And the supposition there was that he was preaching 120 years, and that's not correct. Because uh, it's at this point that God says their time will be 120 years. It doesn't mean that Noah began at that very moment. Because he called Noah a bit later. And then Noah had three sons. And Noah was 500 years. And when the flood come, uh, came, that is, uh, he was 600 years. So 100 years after his sons were born, uh, Noah began to, uh, in other words, Noah ended up his period of uh, preaching to humanity. Uh, at least those who were around him. As it was not 120 years. But, anyway... Uh, in verse uh, 4, we continue. And by the way, you're going to notice, here, if, you, if you circle the word man in the scriptures, in, ja in chapter 6 of Genesis, from verse 1 to verse, 11, to verse actually 9, you're going to see that God constantly refers to man. He puts all the responsibility on man. And he's going to judge only men. You see? If angels were involved, they would have been punished also as the chief culprits who were responsible for it. But it's not them who paid the penalty. It was men and the beasts of the field went along with it. Because both men and the beasts of the field were being influenced by demonic 
spirits. And so God saw that they reached a point where they were so corrupt and so far gone that they had to destroy basically everything that he created because all were affected by those demonic spirits that caused them to devour one another and hate one another and destroy one another. And so they were all involved in it, both man and beast. And that's the reason why God destroyed everything. It's not that he was going to destroy uh, innocent uh, creatures or beings. And some may say, well, how about babies? Well, how about babies? Babies are innocent, but what do babies do when they get, grow older? They just follow the same pattern of their parents. So in his mercy, God was going to put all of them to sleep, so to speak, and then deal with them in the resurrection, where they are not going to be influenced by demons, and now they will be able not to be in that mode of constantly making errors and mistakes, and not being flesh only, but walking in the Spirit, led by the Spirit of God, filled with the Spirit of God. And that's going to be a totally different uh, outcome for them. So you can see the love of God and the mercy of God and the grace of God and the patience of God with them. It wasn't hatred of vindictiveness or vengefulness with which he wanted to destroy them. And people that have no knowledge and understanding of God, they, they immediately jump to this conclusion that God is not fair. We think humanly. In other words, we think in the flesh, not like God beings as we should. And so that's what he's telling them in verse uh, 3, that I don't have 120 years. Then he goes to another subject. There were also giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward. In other words, there were giants in the, in the, in the, in the land. So Moses is recording now a statement. At that time, when everybody was in that state of mind, there were giants in the land. But he's not elaborating here. But then he ends. And also afterward, you see, so it's not a part of it, and it's not linked to it, it's now it's another story. Afterward and also afterward. So and also that's in addition. It's not a part of it. When the sons of God, that is the sons of Elohim, speaking again about about the children of, of, of Adam and Eve, when the boys uh, went to the daughters, which are their sisters, you know the daughters of Adam and Eve were the sisters of men, and uh, by that time there were many of them, so there would be uh, sisters and nieces and, and uh, so forth, and aunts and uh, uh, all kind of things like that. And probably they, they went to a point where they were doing things they should not be doing. So it says, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. So there, uh, you find here basically two subjects. One is about the giants. And another one about uh, the men of renown, mighty people. And the two are not linked. But some people say, think that the two are linked, and they're not. The Bible makes it very plain. Moses is making it very plain. God who's recording it uh, to Moses is making it very plain. He's talking about two different things. But he puts them in the same sentence. And I think uh, those who are, who are uh, reading it carefully and having the context and the background, you know, they can see the meaning of it. And then, especially when you go later on into other passages, uh, in, in the word for the for the giants is nephilim, and uh, it's an interesting word because nephilim comes from the word nafal, which which means fell down. And uh, those were fallen beings, in the sense they were not falling in the way in the way of God, so they were falling in that sense from the way of of righteousness, and maybe that's why they call them nephilim. Uh, I don't know; it's just a speculation. But later on, when uh, the spies that were sent by Moses to look 
the land over, to spy over the land, to check it, to see what kind of land it is, what kind of people live in it, and what kind of produce does it have. They, cl- they claim when they came back, and uh, we read it in uh, Numbers chapter 13 and verse 33, that they saw the Nephilim in the land, the children of Anak. Anak means giant, the children of the giants. In other words, they were so excited about it, and they were so fearful, and they were so afraid, that their description went from one extreme to the other. They claimed that they looked to themselves, or at themselves, as grasshoppers, which is an exaggeration in one extreme, because man doesn't look like a grasshopper, so it is an extreme exaggeration. And then when they see a person, let's say if they were uh, five, six, five, seven foot, uh, and they saw somebody who is seven foot tall, uh, that goes to the other extreme, that becomes a giant. You see? And maybe they were a little bit more than that. I mean, we had here basketball players today who are seven, six, seven, eight. Uh, there are even some that are uh, up to eight foot uh, tall, maybe even taller than that than some of the, uh, the Watusi uh, tribes in Africa. Now, a person that comes from China, he's only uh, three four, uh, foot eight, or maybe four, and he looks at somebody who is eight. Well, you can see the extreme, and then you can see the excited description. Uh, of that, and that's basically what was happening there. And it's not as some people thought, you know, this were people who were 45 feet tall. I mean, that's, that's, that's foolishness. And that, that's what they're talking about. So, Moses is throwing that concept over there uh, in the sense that uh, uh, that was a reality. There were giants up there. There are aberrations in human nature, so to speak. Oh, well, that's what happens sometimes. Even you see it in the plant world also, in the, in the, in the trees. You see that too. Some trees are just huge and giant, while many others of the same type, they're small. And you see it among plants also. So it's not, it's not uh, too far-fetched. But that does not mean that uh, super beings were involved in it. And so that's what he's saying. You know, that there were mighty men, and there were also giants. And then he continues in verse 5. Then the Lord saw, some people say that in ancient manuscripts it said the Lord God, that means Yahweh, Yehovah Elohim, not Yahweh, was a mistake, Yehovah Elohim, and, but here that just uh, somewhere uh, manuscripts ended up with uh, the Lord, that is Yehovah, so that the wickedness of men, and again it's always men, 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 no demons involved, no spirit beings involved, only men, and God makes that point very plain, nine times he repeated that statement that it is men that he's dealing with. It is man that is not going to judge anymore. It is man that is going to destroy. And he wasn't talking about any other involvement. And I think the Bible makes it very plain that is no, as Moses said, you do not add and you do not diminish from the word of God. And people like to do it. And that's how we have all the fables. And we are told to reject those kind of things. Unless God reveals to you something and you know that it is God and you're sure that it is God, you know, you should not be in the business of adding or diminishing. And so, in verse uh, 5 we read, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent, that is, every thought of the thoughts of his heart, was only evil continually. And when, uh, when you read it in, in the Hebrew, basically it says that uh, the whole yetzer, Machshevot Libo, of course I'm speaking in tongues now for, for those who don't speak Hebrew, but some of you may speak Hebrew, you may not understand what I'm talking about, but I'm trying to make a point here. Uh, the word for 
the intent is in Hebrew yeser, uh, and yeser later on in Jewish theology became a sort of a personalized uh, power, where we talk about the good yeser and the bad yeser. That means the good will and the bad will. And so sort of, you know, uh, there are two people inside you. Uh, Paul explained it in terms of the law of the flesh and the law of the spirit were constantly at odd with each other and fighting each other. And as a matter of fact, when you go to, uh, to the book of Galatians, that's what you see there, when he's talking about this, this reality that the flesh, the law of the flesh and the law of the spirit, in chapter 5 of uh, Galatians, I believe, was talking about this constant battle between these two powers within him. And in Romans uh, also, uh, chapter 7, he's discussing the same thing. Well, he knows what is good, but he finds that power within him that makes him do the things that he does not want to do, which are the bad things. And so, God says that this yetzer, God is speaking about this yetzer, and uh, he's basically saying that that force within men is creating a lot of problems for men. And it's interesting that the word yetzer comes from the word yatsar, which means to create. You see? So he's basically saying that the heart of man creates, invents, forms, produces evil thoughts all the day. And in English it says, uh, every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So if you were to translate uh, uh, more correctly, to uh, convey the, the intent and the meaning of uh, what God recorded here, he is basically saying that the heart of man constantly forms and creates evil thoughts all day. In other words, always. That's his bent. Uh, that's the way man had become. He came to a point where he's not capable, so to speak, anymore of good things, of good thoughts. And so, obviously, when man reach that point, God says, well, I've had it with men. I've had it at least with this generation, not with men necessarily, but with this generation, because he obviously did not destroy men. He left Adam, I mean, he left Noah, that is, and his family. So he was totally fed up with humanity that reached a point where every single one of them, of course not the babies, but when the babies grow older, they do exactly like their parents. So, in general, Humanity reached a point, and the beast of the field reached a point, and the birds, and all those that God was going to destroy, where they were constantly in a state of turmoil, of destruction, of malice, of hatred, of devouring one another. And that's what God is saying here. And so in verse 6 we read, And the Lord was sorry, well that's in English, he was sorry, I will explain that, that he had made men on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Or as we read in Hebrew, in English it says, and the Lord was sorry. But in Hebrew, Bainachem, Bainachem. Bainachem is a very interesting word. That's a word that God used here uh, in uh, giving this information to Moses. Bainachem comes from the word, uh, actually it has many meanings in Hebrew. And it's very interesting that it's all compounded here. And it, it conveys many things. In English, uh, some say, and... God repented, or God was sorry. Some places it says repented, in other places he was sorry. 
and uh, it means to repent, it means to comfort, and it means to rest. And it's very interesting. Three, uh, in, in one way you might say uh, different concepts, but they are linked also in that word, are, are used here. And uh, you'll see it more interestingly when you find out the next thought and the, may, and the name of the next uh, person, the only one that God was not uh, sorry about or didn't uh, get angry with, that he wanted to destroy. And that is also linked to this word by Nahem. Because, uh, uh, as we should, let's read it again uh, and, and add the other thoughts so we can see it all together. And so in, in verse 6, and it says, And the Lord was sorry that he made man all the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And uh, then in verse 9, actually, uh, we'll read it again when we come to verse uh, 7. At the bottom, that is at the end of verse 7, it says, For I am sorry that I have made man, that's again, God is using the same word again by Nachem, but Noah found grace in his eyes, that is in the eyes of the Lord. And when you read in English, you totally miss uh, the, the, the word that is used in both cases that is linked to each other, and it's sort of a play on words. By Nahem is he was sorry, and Noah found grace in his sight. And both Noah and by Nahem and to comfort all come from the same word. So in Hebrew, it conveys something that you lose in, in the translation. And that's the nature of languages. Uh, they are not always capable of uh, translating exactly, and that's why there are certain statements or words that you can say only in one language, and somehow they just don't mean the same in another language. And there are some things that cannot be translated properly unless you explain, but even then, you know, you, you still don't get the meaning because you are speaking a different language. But God is saying that basically he is sorry and he is repenting himself of, uh, of that. And is going to destroy basically everything. And so, he says in verse 7, So the Lord said, I will destroy man, again, it's always man, and only man, and it's not spirit beings involved in it, whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast. You see? Now, you might ask the question, as we already talked about it before, why, why man and beast? If, if man is the one doing all these evil things, why, why beast? And then it says, and beast, and creeping things, and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. And now it's not only men, but them, all of them. I'm sorry that I made them. You see, the beasts of the field and the air, uh, that is, uh, the birds of the air, and the creeping things were not involved in the wickedness that was happening around, God is not going to say that I'm sorry that I made them. He, he's just going to say I'm sorry that I made men. So you see, there's an awful lot of information behind behind the, the scenes there. You know, uh, if you read between the lines and you put things together and you go further, you know, further, and, and you see the, the spirit world that was behind it of, of demons, of spirit beings that were evil beings that entered into that is possessed human beings and possessed animals and creatures. That's the reason why down the road, all those creatures became uh, symbolically the gods of the people that lived in those days. That's why they worshipped snakes and beetles and, and uh, birds and uh, fish and all that. Because demons were possessing those creatures, and through those creatures they were dealing with human beings. And that's how 
men in fearing those creatures who were now acting uh, like demons because demons were in them and even probably speaking to human beings like the serpent spoke to you. Uh, people actually thought that those were gods and so they feared them and because they feared them they tried to appease them and worship them and offer them sacrifices and all that. And that's how the whole thing came about. And uh, you have an example, we can go to that example as I said, I mentioned earlier that I will, I will uh, come back to it. And that is a specific example that God gives us here, as well as the one that we already read in Revelation in terms of the angels, where it says in Revelation, as we read it earlier, that Babylon will be a habitation of every foul spirit. So he's speaking about spirits. And also he has in a cage of demons. So he's speaking, he's explaining the spirits that he's talking about are the demons, not the holy angels. And a prison for every uh, foul spirit, and a cage of demons, and, uh, and a cage of every unclean and hated bird. And that goes also for creatures and all that. In other words, God is explaining that, that uh, not only in this account in Genesis that we are reading, uh, that uh, human beings were being influenced by spirit beings that were demons, but also the animals were influenced by them. And so he's going to have to destroy all of them. And that's the reason why human beings began to worship not only deities in the sense of, of uh, God beings who look like men, and men look like them, but also they began to worship also creatures, knowing at least uh, experiencing uh, satanic powers within uh, those creatures. And since we are running out of time, I think we should uh, stop here. It's a natural break. So this is again Morica Joseph saying goodbye to all of God's people. Until next time. The preceding message was taken from the World Wide Website at address www.biblestudy.org. This site is sponsored by Barnabas Ministries. Bible Study. You have questions, the Bible has answers.